1: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com.
2: It's FTX. It's a safe and easy way to get into crypto.
0: Yeah, I don't think so. And I'm never
2: wrong about this stuff. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And if you've been listening for a while now, you might know that for probably a year now, I've wanted to do a special series of episodes to explain and explore the profound political implications of the emerging financial tools and technologies and assets that are vaguely implied by the term crypto. Some of you have expressed a lot of interest in this topic. Still, others of you might be thinking, don't bother me too much with crypto. I hope it goes away before I ever have to learn more about it. (laughs) I've received messages to that effect. If you identify with that sentiment, I understand. But I would suggest that you may have been ill-served by the mostly simplistic and uh, often dismissive coverage of this topic among major news media. So while I am planning a longer series of episodes that will begin with some fundamentals about money and currency, like its origin and evolution, properties and functions, and some of the fundamental themes driving this innovation, like privacy uh, and the freedom to transact legally without government interference, the dollar as the global reserve currency, which has come up a few times on the podcast, this is not that series. But I am particularly excited about the conversation we're about to have because I think it will offer you a window into the disruptive power of emerging finance and the novel questions and turf wars that lawmakers and regulators and prosecutors are now facing as a result of this innovation in the context of an enormously consequential war of lobbyists and lawyers and PR firms and activists between Wall Street and Silicon Valley. So today we're going to talk about Sam Bankman Freed and the collapse of what was one of the largest crypto exchanges in the world, FTX and everything you need to understand about this story. To do that, I am lucky to have two good friends joining me today whose combined knowledge and expertise spans everything we're going to talk about today. Donna Riddell was the Managing Director of the World Economic Forum, and she was the first woman to chair a U.S. exchange, the Commodities Exchange. She's also a New York City-based advisor and investor focusing on fintech, blockchain, and emerging technologies. Donna also developed and teaches a course on blockchain crypto digital assets at Fordham Law School and the Fordham Gabelli Business School. She's also taught at the Wharton School at Penn and her alma mater, Columbia. She has a JD from Fordham Law School and an MBA from Columbia. Donna, it is my pleasure to welcome you to Politicology.
3: Very, very happy to be here. And I'm looking forward to an exciting conversation, um, especially in the times we are at the moment. We are
2: also joined by Justin Weitz, a partner at the international law firm Morgan Lewis, where he specializes in white-collar criminal issues and government enforcement. Justin spent a decade at the Department of Justice with a focus on running and managing public corruption and complex financial fraud investigations and prosecutions. Over the last several years, Justin has spent quite a bit of time focused on cryptocurrency-related criminal investigations. Justin, it's great
0: to have you here. Welcome to Politicology.
1: It is wonderful to be here.
2: Where do we begin here? On a really fundamental level, I think there are a lot of people who don't spend a lot of time thinking about this space, who assume that a cryptocurrency is a cryptocurrency. They might have different names, but that these tokens and coins all really operate functionally the same way and should be treated the same way. So, Donna, could you begin uh, maybe by surveying the landscape of different digital assets? Focusing on cryptocurrency, since that's what we're concerned with here today, and in particular highlight the difference between Bitcoin and crypto, uh, especially through the eyes of regulators. What do do people need to know to access the conversation we're about to have?
3: So I would say that, of course, most people um, remember that Bitcoin was the first crypto um, and blockchain um, on a cryptocurrency uh, that started uh, way back in 2008. The a white paper was published. And in 2009, the first um, bit of Bitcoin was mined. The fundamental difference about Bitcoin, it is capped. So they cannot have any inflation. Um, it is completely decentralized. There's no supreme being or group of beings. Um, Satoshi Nakamoto, who is the, quote, founder, um, people don't know whether he, she, or they um who they are, and it's not necessary to know who they are. It's much better, actually, to have it totally decentralized. But what it was was a response to the um, the complete collapse of the financial system uh, globally in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. What we saw again was central banks printing money, and actually within one of the first blocks. That Satoshi mined, he put the front page of the Financial Times, which talked about the printing of the money and the um, and uh, the Bank of England, and so that was a commentary on the ability for central banks to inflate their currency, to protect their currency, to to create more money, etc. And so that I think is like the most Bitcoin is the you know granddaddy, as well as has different properties than the other coins. The other coins are spun up around, um, around protocols that do various kinds of, uh, of decentralized finance. Though, for the most part, there's a lot of theater around their decentralization. And um, that we can go into a, a, bit, a bit later. Um, but it also allows Bitcoin the ability to self-custody. I mean, you can hold your own money. These are bearer instruments which is something that the governments don't particularly like anymore uh, for a number of reasons, including taxation. Um, But uh, we can get into more of that as we get into the conversation. Hopefully, that is a good level setting.
2: Justin, I think there's a um, misguided sense also that because what we're talking about is at the bleeding edge of innovation, um, that's, that it is completely unregulated and, uh, and the, there's a wild, wild west uh, effect happening. There is some gray area, right? Um, but the idea that these startups are running wild, they are completely unaccountable to existing law is not right either. Uh, so generally speaking, Donna just mentioned sort of the 2008 collapse and then you have Bitcoin entering the scene right after that as a response to it. How has the emergence of these new financial assets and, and technologies Uh, impacted, changed the way white-collar law enforcement um, approaches this, this, this space, and specifically the intersection of technology
1: and finance. So it's important to put yourself in the shoes of law enforcement and prosecutors and people at the SEC and CFTC and other regulators in the way they were introduced to crypto and the way they think about it. The way in which crypto became a public topic, the way a lot of people in law enforcement and the SEC and the prosecutor community first heard about it It wasn't the most positive unveiling. And what I mean by that is when I think crypto really first hit the scene as far as DOJ and the FBI and other parts of the government um, go, really was about 10 years ago involving Silk Road. I think that was the first big crypto-related law enforcement or prosecution action.
2: And Silk Road, for everybody listening, was a black market, essentially, on the internet where you could buy and sell almost anything but pay for it in cryptocurrency.
1: Exactly. And Ross Ulbricht, who was convicted and sentenced to life in prison, who went by the name Dread Pirate Roberts, that in that case, there was a lot of bad stuff going on. Uh, there were hitmen being recruited. There was drugs. There was child porn. There was pretty much everything you could imagine. There were also side cases involving law enforcement agents who had stolen money, uh, stolen crypto uh, crypto or stolen Bitcoin, in the process of investigating those cases, and so that's the way that I think a lot of people in the FBI, at DOJ, and in the law enforcement community in general became introduced to crypto as this tool for being used for illegal activity. Now we know that's not the only reason you use crypto, and frankly, it's not the reason that most people, the overwhelming majority, do. Right, but
2: that's to your point. That's also the way most people were exposed to it because those were the headlines, right? So yeah. we've come a long way since those days, uh, but but I but. It, not only law enforcement. I think my, my my parents also probably were exposed to this stuff in the same way, in the same context as as the as the you know the, the crimes and abuse.
3: I just wanted to you know make sure that people understand that because these cryptos and will, whether it's Bitcoin or other are on a blockchain, they're relatively easy to track. And so, in these, the the DOJ and other law enforcement people will say that it's a much easier to track Bitcoin. it is cash. And these types of activities, no matter how nefarious they are, were happening and are happening and people are transacting in other kinds of medium. And it's easier to catch them um, and to find them because of the crypto than uh, than other ways. And there are a number of very sophisticated companies, uh, Chainalysis, Elliptic, just to mention a few, that work with Governments, exchanges, et cetera, in doing this constant kind of tracking in order to be able to get the bad guys, um, albeit that, it, you know, what Justin says is, is absolutely true. It came to, to uh, people's attention in these kind of headline things. Right. So it's evolved since then.
1: It it has. And I mean, I think the point you make, Donna, is totally right. But early on, I think from the perspective of DOJ, it just sounded really, really shady, right? This idea that you have a blockchain. I think most people, and this is probably true as much as I love my former colleagues at DOJ, I think a lot of people there don't fully understand how a blockchain works and how cryptocurrency works. And they see it as this nefarious Th- this tool that's been used, and, and certainly it has been used, but by the way, so has cash, so yep, have credit cards. So has cash. So right. a lot of other things um, for illegal purposes. Yeah. But to the degree that first impressions really matter, yeah. Silk Road is a really bad first impression for cryptocurrency. This to is make. a political
2: podcast. We know first impressions uh, it's, matter. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Um, so I, it's the coming down an escalator, if yeah. you would. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I'll just say it, it was a really bad first impression. And so I yeah. think the lens that a lot of people – at the FBI, SEC, DOJ, all these other entities looked at crypto through was really negative. I don't think that's entirely the case right now, but it led, to, it led to a view that we need to be rooting out wrongdoing and misconduct in the crypto space, which I think is a good thing. We all want illegal conduct to be rooted out. The second thing I'll just say very quickly in terms of the way that regulators and law enforcement look at this is DOJ, SEC, everyone is ambitious. Everybody wants to bring big cases. Crypto's gotten a ton of attention in the last five years. And so there's been competition among and within those agencies to bring big cases. And it means figuring out how to use contracts with chainalysis and other consulting agencies to find crypto-related cases uh, and really spend more time on cryptocurrency-related fraud and misconduct cases, sometimes to the exclusion of other things. And so what you're seeing in the media as a result is crypto case after crypto case after crypto case, because I do think DOJ and the SEC and the other agencies are focusing on crypto cases that I I always call the magic beans cases Mm, and they could be, they could be anything, right? Ah. It could be somebody lying uh, a Ponzi scheme or some other scheme where somebody's lying about anything. They could lie and say, I have magic beans, but the magic beans happen to be called magic beans coin. And so it becomes a crypto case and it's sexy and exciting. (laughs) And as a result, it's all over the media and that contributes to this cycle where everybody thinks that crypto is inherently a shady criminal enterprise.
3: Talking about all these agencies, yeah. the problem with them is that they do a lot of talking and they may bring cases, but what they haven't done is do the real work. Um, they haven't sat down and said, okay, there's a new technology here. The new technology enables lots of privacy it enables uh, uh, people to be able to custody their own assets enables them to be able to be more sophisticated or or not I mean they could choose to do or not do it um, and and so how how are we going to approach this on a holistic basis to be able to not just squeeze it into the rules that currently exist but also modify or or adapt rules um, that currently exist or put new ones, in that reflect the, the the technology, the innovation and not stifle it. And we are behind. the EU has a whole comprehensive set of rules. the uh, Brazil has comprehensive rules Singapore, Dubai, um, UK just put out a, a whole you know I don't know 400 pages of the things that they're thinking of doing for common. And we um, don't have that.
2: Okay, so we've now established the, the sort of landscape that this conversation is happening in. So you mentioned big cases, Justin. One of the biggest cases ever in this space is what we're talking about today, FTX. So for the 18 months before the collapse of FTX, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried was uh, all over Washington working with members of Congress and regulators. He was uh, you know, being talked about as the person who was going to take crypto mainstream. Right, is this wonderkind? FTX spent a ton of money on promotion. They had the naming rights to the Miami Heat's arena. They spent 22 over 22 million dollars on social display and video ads in the U.S. in 2022, and that number doesn't include all the TV ads, Super Bowl, or out of home or sports deals that they did. FTX and SBF uh, became central figures in how people who hadn't paid attention to emerging finance became acquainted with it. So, I want to take a minute to lay out the positioning of uh, SPF as a figure and FTX in the landscape of the emerging financial industry. Donna, do you want to take the ball there?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, as you said, you have a wunderkind um, who is uh, a combination of um, a, pers- a personality um, and uh, has some very good entree to Washington Um, Initially through, I believe it was his mother, both of his parents are um, professors at Stanford Law and his mother was very involved with the Democratic Party. And so he became somebody that was going to Capitol Hill a lot, um, raised a lot of money. We could talk about the money um, raising, et cetera, later on to be able to start um, a a global exchange and a U.S. exchange. Um, A lot of the products that were offered in the global exchange were not were not offered in the U.S., because they don't comply with U.S. rules. But that doesn't mean that the, the global exchange, you know, it was the second largest right behind Binance that grew very, very rapidly and um, was very involved. Also, it had a second part of it, which was a, a, um, a hedge fund called Alameda, um, which was uh, making markets. And there's not a lot of, um, of Chinese walls between uh, in exchanges between what is the market makers, the exchange, the customer money, clarity relating to what you can or you can't, the exchange can or can't do with that money. So, at the same time that his persona is one of, we want to play by the rules behind the scene, as we've now found out, he was um, really kind of doing things that were blatantly, uh, allegedly illegal. So, back in spring 2022, I was
2: asked to present a discussion at Wake Forest University on a the future of capitalism, a conference they were having on the future of capitalism, and the discussion I put together. Donna was part of that, and so was Mike Madrid, and we were talking about cryptocurrencies and democracy and the future of capitalism. And I remember while we were down there at either one of the breakout sessions or it might have been before, uh, right before the conference started. Donna, you showed me the transcript from this interview, which is now infamously referred to as the box interview or the black box interview. And I want to play two of the clips from that interview, uh, which was on the Bloomberg podcast with Matt Levine and Sam Bankman-Fried and a couple of other co-hosts. So I've got two clips here. The whole exchange is about 10 minutes long, but I just pulled out two sections that are about two minutes in length each. And I want to play the first one for you now.
4: Can you give me an intuitive understanding of farming? I mean, like to me, farming is like you sell some structured puts and collect premium, but perhaps there's a more sophisticated understanding than that. Let me give you sort of like a really, a a toy model of it, which I actually think has a surprising amount of legitimacy for what farming could mean. You know, where do you start? You start with a company that builds a box. And in practice, this box, they probably dress it up to look like a life-changing, you know, world-altering protocol that's going to replace all the big banks in 38 days or whatever. <laughs> Maybe for now, actually ignore what it does or pretend it does literally nothing. It's just a box. So what this protocol is, it's called Protocol X. It's a box and you can take a token, and you can take Ethereum, and you can put it in the box and you can take it out of the box. Like you put it into the box and you get like, you know, an IOU for, for having put it in the box and then you can redeem that IOU back out for the token. So, so far what we've described is the world's dumbest ETF or ADR or something like that. It's a, it doesn't do anything, but let you put things in it if you so chose. And then this protocol issues a token. We'll call it whatever X token and X token promises that anything cool that happens because of this box is going to ultimately be usable by, you know, governance vote of holders. Of the X tokens, they can vote on what to do with any proceeds or other cool things that happen from this box. And of course, so far we haven't exactly given a, a compelling reason for why there ever would be any proceeds from this box. But like, I don't know. You know, maybe, maybe there will be. That's sort of where you start, and then you say, "All right, well, you we got this box, and you got X token, and the the box protocol." declares or, or maybe votes by on-chain governance or, you know, something like that, that what they're going to do is they are going to take half of all the X tokens that will left minted, maybe two-thirds of, two-thirds of all will for X tokens, and they're going to give them away for free to everyone who uses the box. So anyone who goes, takes some money, puts it in the box, each day they're going to airdrop, you know, 1% of the X tokens pro rata. Except for who's put money in the box. That's for now what X token does. It's given away to the box people. And now what happens? Well, X token has some market cap, right? It's it's probably not zero. Well, let's say it's you know twenty million dollars market cap and a bunch of our well, treasury. Come... From, from like first principles, it should be zero. But okay. <laughs> uh, sure. Okay. <laughs> I, I completely reasonable comment.
2: <laughs> okay. From like first principles, the market cap of this box should be zero. So I'm going to play another clip in a minute. This conversation builds towards something that is really just really stunning that it was that it would he said it in public. But up to this point, so far, Justin, through a prosecutor's eyes, how does this sound to you? Because what he's describing is is exactly the way most of these protocols were being launched and monetized and capitalized and sold. Uh, up until up until FTX collapsed, so this was this was normal
1: at that time. So I think that from a prosecutor's eyes, when you're thinking about criminal cases, it all comes down to criminal intent, right? And it's different from what the SEC has to prove uh, in its enforcement actions. It's different from the way we all think about it. It's really about criminal intent and whether there was an intent to deceive or defraud. And throughout this whole process, I think one thing that struck me was will they be able to show that Sam bankman fried acted with an intent to defraud? Because to be totally candid, as this was unfolding, and we'll get eventually to the indictment and, and some of the development since then, um, that I think made clear that DOJ probably has a pretty good shot of proving it. But I, there, there's an argument to be made, and I think what a lot of us probably thought when we heard this for the first time was, I don't know, is this intent to defraud or is just is this just somebody who is operating a risky business Um, in which he's being completely candid about the risks and uh, there's no real intent there. And that's what distinguishes a criminal case. Uh, I don't know when DOJ started the investigation of Sam Bankman Freed. My suspicion is they were investigating him in some form prior to the collapse of FTX in November. But I, I don't think it was an investigation of this sort into what eventually transpired and what eventually was charged. And so a lot of people heard this at the time and a lot of people looked at FTX over the course of the last year, two years really, and said, okay, he's being completely candid about this and we don't see a problem. It was only when things started to collapse that it really became a criminal issue for him and it became one very, very quickly.
3: Yeah. A a couple of things. Number one, what he was describing wasn't – he was not there describing his own token, though it actually became – very similar to what he did. Now, if we added on, Justin, since, you know, lawyers love hypos um, and professors love hypos, if we added on the fact that here we have this uh, box and we creating these tokens and, um, and me, you know, who has these, um, I'm manufacturing these tokens in the box, um, I, unbeknownst to you, create a market in these tokens. And every time that the token goes down in price, I buy up a lot of tokens. Why? Because I want the market to think there's a demand and I wanna support the price. And so I am doing that. I won't put any words to what that is, but a prosecutor, you might. And I'm not disclosing to people that I'm doing that. The market dips, it goes back up. I use money to do that you know, et cetera, et cetera. Or at my trading firm uses money to do that. And it's a very narrow market. Um, and so therefore, not only, not only am I doing that in the marketplace, but when I give you as an investor, my balance sheet, these box tokens, all of a sudden are worth substantially more than maybe if there was a more free market trading of it. And all of a sudden, what might've been worth maybe, let's just say hundred million dollars, appears to be worth a billion because as maybe Ron will then play in the second part of the clip, that's exactly what these box tokens uh, happened to
2: that that's exactly right. And I also want to offer up for context that um that as as Sam is describing here, and the part of this that we're sort of cutting out just for time purposes, because it's a ten minute long uh, bit. I'm the next clip I'm going to play is about two minutes. But uh, at this time, People, it's including lots of VC money from Silicon Valley is flooding into these protocols purely because they are yielding so much, uh, uh, that such a high return that they can't get anywhere else. So I'm going to play this second clip, and, and this is what it sort of builds to.
4: You know, X tokens being given out each day, all these like sophisticated firms are like, huh, that's interesting. Like if the total amount of money in the box is $100 million dollars, then it's going to yield 16 million dollars this year in x tokens being given out for it that's a 16 percent return that's pretty good we'll put a little bit more in right and and, and maybe that that happens until there are 200 million dollars in the box so you know sophisticated traders and or people on crypto twitter or or other sort of similar parties go and and put 200 million dollars in the box collectively and they start getting these x tokens for it right and now all of a sudden everyone's like wow People just decide to put 200 million dollars in the box this is a pretty cool box right like <laughs> this this is a valuable box as demonstrated by all the money that people have apparently decided should be in the box and who are we to say that they're wrong about that like you know this is i i mean boxes can be great look i love boxes as so much the next guy <laughs> right and and God. so so what happens now all of a sudden people are kind of recalibrating like well 20 million dollars that's it like that market cap for this box and it's been like 48 hours and it already is 200 million dollars including from like sophisticated players in it they're like come on that's too low right like and and they look at these ratios tvl total value locked in the box you know as a ratio to market cap of the box's token and they're like 10x that's insane 1x is the norm and so then, you know, X token price goes way up and now it's a $130 million market cap token because of, you know, the bullishness of people's usage of the box. And now all of a sudden, of course, the smart money, it's like, oh, wow, like this thing's now yielding like 60% a year in X tokens. Of course, I'll take my 60% yield. Right. So they go, they they pour another $300 million in the box and you get a site and then it goes to infinity no, and then I, everyone I, makes money. I I think of myself as like a fairly cynical person. And that was so much more cynical (laughs) than how I would have described farming. Like, you're just like, well, I'm in the Ponzi business and it's pretty good. And did any of this require any sort of like economic case? It's just like other people put money in the box. And so I'm going to too. And then it's more valuable. So I am going to put more money in. And at no point in the cycle did it seem to like describe any sort of like economic purpose.
2: Okay, so clearly we ought to be in the box business because apparently apparently that's uh that's that's the way to do it. So I play all of this um because in a minute we're gonna talk about well, what happened then to FTX, right? What 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 catalyzed their their downfall, what what led to the collapse? But I play all of this uh because Donna, as you sent me the the uh the transcript and we were looking at it together, we were down at Wake Forest. Your, your eyes just like bugged out of your head. I can't believe he said this in public. I can't actually believe his, his lawyers let him say this. Um, why, 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 why did that strike you?
3: Well, first of all, uh, like he does not listen to his lawyers and you know, who knows, who knows where they were, um, very but, clear. Uh, but, um you know, he was very candid about it. Um, and Clearly, the way he framed it and Matt Levine being both uh, formerly at Goldman and a lawyer could, you know, see right through. He's very clever, very smart um, and very uh, an amazing writer. Um, and so and, and you know, he didn't, you know, SBF did not even object to the categorization of it as 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 a as a Ponzi scheme. Now, I'm not sure he believed at that point he was in that business. He was fundamentally in the exchange business albeit that he had this FTT coin, Um, but he was, you know, in theory, not in the coin creation business, though he backed a lot of coins. We put on the side his coin. So, yeah, he was just describing what was going on at the time with these box tokens and also the VCs that were making enormous returns from money that they put in and the liquidity of these tokens. So the the time frame in which they were realizing return on investments instead of the kind of standard, I put some money in a company, maybe in five years they have a buyout or they go public or something like that. It was you getting return on your investment within a year because you had all of these these tokens that were liquid. And, you know, as soon as they could, you could unlock them in accordance with whatever, you know, kind of uh, laws existed for accredited investors and the ability to to do all that, you sold them. Yeah. So the way
2: I like to think about this is whoever makes the prettiest box makes the most popular box and the most popular box gets the most money put in it. And the box with the most money put in it yields the most money because the money just keeps coming to the popular box. So just until the until the box is popular. <laughs> Remember what I right, said. Right, until it's not popular anymore. So is that illegal?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Remember what I said about magic beans? Yeah. Um <laughs> So the question of whether it's legal, by the way, this is not legal advice, as, sure, Matt, yeah, as Matt Levine right. likes to say. And this is also
2: not financial advice, yes, by the way. <laughs>
1: um, this is not legal advice. I'm not your lawyer. <laughs> right. If you have a box that you're looking to market, please find right. a lawyer. Right. Who knows yeah. what they're talking about. Right. Whether it's illegal, I mean, where the illegality comes is from two, pro, two principal places. One, are you being completely truthful about it? If you are being completely truthful about it, you know, fraud as a general concept involves lying to get money. Um, misstating something, misrepresenting something, um, omitting something that you need to say, that you have an obligation to tell somebody, if you're being completely upfront and straight about your box, it may not be, it may not be fraud. It may not be illegal. Um, there's a whole, so the, so the, so the, so the structure of a
2: Ponzi scheme isn't inherently criminal technically
1: in theory, and I can't imagine a Ponzi scheme that could work this way. If you were completely upfront with your investors that what we're running here is a Ponzi scheme and there's going to be X amount of money. And if you don't get out when when the music stops, you're going to be out your money. And everybody says, great, we knew that and we got into it. I think you'd have a really tough criminal case as a prosecutor. Should they make a cheap shot about social security? <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, definitely
1: no comment on that one.
3: I, okay. Yeah, but if, if we circle back to, to the regulators, yeah. it's not helpful, for example— after FTX implodes, that the SEC says, wow, I think that FTT token is a security. Like, seriously? By, by then? What's the point? You know, the, the question is, is that before you have it, it's not as if there hadn't been any exchanges along the way that ha- had problems. It was. It's not as if bankruptcy people hadn't been talking about if it's not your keys, meaning if it's on your if your crypto is on a in custody on an exchange, it's not your crypto. Um, It's not none of these things, whether it was FTX or Celsius or Voyager or BlockFi, these are, you know, lots and lots of names, Terra Luna, et cetera. These were around. And so even just today, I mean, actually yesterday, um, the SEC to bring a case against Doquan and Terra Luna is is somewhat of a joke because They could have stopped something earlier on when they made a big deal and flexed a lot of muscles that they went to a conference and gave him a subpoena. That was in October of 21, which was many, many months before it imploded. I think it was uh, April, May of 22. And so the fact that a regulator is doing these things after the fact without a clarity of regulation before the fact is really where, where 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 the problem is uh, at, at this point so we'll get to we'll get to the the, the regulatory clarity in a
2: bit, but first I want to talk about what happened next and Donna, maybe you can walk us through why did FTX Collapse. Given that we've we've just we've just set the stage with what was going on behind the scenes, at least with yield farming, right, and the and the Ponzi scheme, without commentary on whether it was legal or not, um, what happened next, and and how did it happen so quickly with FTX?
3: Well, there were a series of events actually that happened somewhat prior to the FTX collapse that I just referred to, um, which was started. You know, there was Terra Luna, which was a maybe stable coin that wasn't a stable coin it was anyway and um and that collapsed in um in april may of of 2022 um a lot of people had been involved um many many people in asia not to say that there weren't a lot of people um in the us as well but had been involved in that ecosystem again there was a ponzi scheme there um mostly anchor uh which was one of these boxes. And, um, and so that came down. With it, it brought a number of, of, of institutional players that had been highly leveraged and all doing the same trade for the most part. That brought down 3AC, which was a big uh, company. They all had also been using uh, as collateral um, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust um, uh, and so you saw the unraveling of some of the the leverage that was there, BlockFi, Celsius, which is clearly a clearly a Ponzi scheme. And that brought us basically to the summer. Um, FTX, we nobody really knew was in any problems. They had raised some decent money uh, during the bull market of 2022. And so, you know, people thought that they had a good trading arm, Alameda and that they were doing a lot of good business, et cetera. But it's only so long you can continue to prop up what was going on. The interesting thing is that some of the pressure and public persona that SBF had is part of the reason of the downfall. He got very involved in the Stabenow bill. The Stabenow bill um, had some provisions in it that were specifically um, aimed at DeFi decentralized finance protocols, in which there was an attempt to create the same type of regulation that would exist for an exchange like an FTX. They're very different animals. And so um, Twitter, which is a way that a lot of um the uh, crypto world and other people engage with it, um, he Sam wrote a big um, a long post about his theory on regulation, which then, um, ended up with, um, Eric Van Horst, which is a, who's an incredibly smart libertarian, wonderful Bitcoiner and writer. He engaged with Sam on, on Twitter. And on a Sunday night, they had a debate and it was a, it's a fantastic debate. I, I point all of your, and if you do show notes, put the debate in your show notes in which he basically, you know, kind of won the debate. Um, thereafter, on, that was on a Sunday, by Thursday, the, somebody had leaked to Coindesk, the balance sheet of Alameda. The balance sheet of Alameda showed these FTT, these box tokens that were the biggest asset within their balance sheet. And that was the first look. The next, by the next Sunday, um, uh, a CZ of Binance who had been an early investor in FTX, had said, you know, I've done, you know, I've gotten out of, very nicely, he said, I've gotten out of some of my my position in FTX and the equity, it's time for me to clean up the rest, and he was going to sell his tokens. He was also supposedly quite annoyed at uh, some negative remarks about him by SBF um, relating to whether or not he was allowed to come to Washington. Um, Many people interpret that different ways. I'll let everyone interpret it their own way. Um, And so he said he was going to sell those. Um, The person that was then running Alameda, who was uh, Caroline, uh, she uh, said uh, that she would buy it all at 22. Now, that's a very bad poker move because now the whole world knows that the support level for you for that token is 22, which would mean for any of the loans that were collateralized, it was 22. CZ replied and said, thank you very much, but I will let the market do its work. And then he started to sell the tokens. Of course, um, uh, S- the, the Alameda, uh, SBF and others started to su- try and support that token, trying to buy it, as we talked before, to support the price of that token until actually they had no more money to do that. The token collapsed and then it was a matter of time until everything else kind of went went under.
2: So is it fair to say, in, in, in summation, uh, right, that, that, um, that CZ, who's the head of this major competitor exchange, Binance, says, I'm going to sell off all my tokens, and that the tokens that he's going to sell are the box tokens we were discussing earlier. Uh, and that made a lot of other people antsy. So there was a run on the bank, and people were trying to withdraw more money than FTX had to give back to them, right? That's absolutely correct. So they had $5 billion in withdrawals that same day. Uh, <laughs> $5 billion with a B. Um, and this run on the bank really revealed that FTX had you know, moved at least $4 billion uh, from FTX to Alameda, as you mentioned, their trading arm. That's according to Reuters. Uh, the Wall Street Journal reported FTX lent more than half of its $16 billion in customer funds to Alameda in total. November 11th, I should say, FTX had filed bankruptcy uh, for FTX, FTX.US, and Alameda. And then by December 12th, SBF was arrested in the Bahamas at the request of the U.S. government on charges that included wire fraud and conspiracy to defraud investors. And, Justin, that brings us to the criminal case. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. And make sure you're subscribed so you get notified when the second part of this conversation drops next week. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.